0: Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we've heard out of the mouths of babes that uh, you, Jesus, are coming back and that we're reading a text where your power was shown, where you stopped the mouths of the lions and where you uh, brought hope to a hopeless situation, where you were in control when the greatest powers on earth thought they were in control. Be with us as we spend time in your word. I pray that you bless your people. I pray that you guide my words. I pray that I would be able to stand aside and that uh, we would all see you. Bless us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the interest of full disclosure, uh, I have preached Daniel 6 before in this very pulpit. Uh, it's been a while. It was in 2011. Uh, and so if at the end you think, hey, I remember that, this that may be why. And I love preaching this text. Uh, this is a fabulous story. It's uh, one we often get in some sort of watered-down uh, illustrated version. Uh, I call it Flannel Daniel. And uh, Flannel Daniel is always perpetually happy, and uh, he's always perpetually about 23 years old. Uh, Sometimes he should be 12 in the story, as in Daniel 1. He was probably between 12 and 18. And uh, you do a little bit of math, and you realize, uh, okay, um, if Daniel went in in 605 B.C., Cyrus the Persian conquers Babylon in 539. It's about 65 years, and Daniel is in his mid-70s at the earliest, maybe late 70s, maybe his 80s. And what we're coming to uh, is Daniel toward the end of his life. Uh, We don't know how old. How old he was when he died? But we certainly know this is not this is not Flannel Daniel, and the world he lives in is not fluffy, and uh, it's a hard place. When I was thinking about this text, uh, I was reflecting. Um, when I met Anya uh, back in 2009, uh, I was in Uzbekistan. Uh, As a tourist, doing the kinds of things that uh, we're trained for in tourist school, uh, where we study the Bible, Um, uh, which is just my way of saying, uh, I was teaching there, and Anya was my translator. And toward the end, we spent time in a wonderful place called Samarkand, and Samarkand is a place that you may not have heard of, or you may recognize it from... uh, the Arabian Nights, uh, the 1001 Arabian Nights, is set in Samarkand, at least partly. That's where the storytelling takes place. Uh, it's a pretty old city. Uh, you would recognize uh, some of the architecture, almost certainly, uh, because it's, it's so famous. And it was uh, the, the seat of power of a man named Amir Timur, also known as Tamerlane who ruled a sizable empire in the Middle Ages from 1370 to 1405. Uh, And uh, it's one of those things that we in America don't study enough. Uh, Why do I tell you all this? Samarkand is one of six places where people believe Daniel may be buried. And Anya can tell you that the people of Uzbekistan say he is there. And there are five other places in the world uh, in in the Persian Empire uh, where there are some pretty interesting claims. uh, And it's really difficult to know. Um, Kind of makes sense. It could be any of them. Daniel was second in command of an empire that was enormous. But no one claims that Daniel... Uh, was eaten and has no tomb. Daniel was buried. He lived past the lion's den where he should have met his end. And we come to this text, and I'm convinced that there are two big questions that run through the course of Daniel, and I've mentioned these before. And they run through the entire narrative section And this is the last of the narratives where we have a story about Daniel or of one of his friends. And after this, Daniel 7 and on, uh, you get these visions, and they're remarkable. And we don't see quite the same thing until the book of Revelation. Uh, But there are two big things going on, I think, in Daniel. And it's sort of hammered over and over from different angles. First in the stories then from the visions. Who is in control? And is God with his people? And on the surface, it would have been so easy to say, Nebuchadnezzar's in control. Belshazzar's in control. Darius is in control. And of course, God has left. His people are in a foreign land. And yet Daniel speaks over and over that God is in control and he is with his people. Now, we often look at this story as a story of kind of encouragement and something to be emulated. That is, we look at Daniel as a hero. We look at Daniel as somebody that, well, Daniel was faithful and so we should be faithful. Daniel was bold, and so we should be bold. And that's that's there. But of far more importance is what is done for Daniel. Uh, and if you take a half step back, if Daniel had been faithful and just just died, it would be a it would be a powerful story. It would be a powerful story if Daniel was faithful, and met his end in the den den of lions, and we would say, that's incredible faith. But instead, what we see is first the grace and power of God as Savior. And then we also see a bit of the world Daniel lived in. And, And we do see Daniel as somebody who is very faithful, and we see Daniel foreshadowing Christ uh, in some very vivid ways. So what can we say about Daniel? Like I said, this is Daniel toward the end of his life. And you can imagine that uh, he might have thought, all right, this is the end. Uh, It wasn't. Uh, And Daniel is living in an interesting time. In chapter 5, we saw that uh, King Belshazzar had his drunken kegger party with all his buddies while his father was off doing works of temple restoration. And he sees the writing on the wall. God has judged him. And the Persians just walk in to Babylon, and the Babylonians are happy. Uh, And we know about this because the Bible tells us, and we know because the Persians record it, that they saw Cyrus as a liberator. And Daniel, a bit ironically, has been set up to be third in the kingdom because he, he interpreted the writing on the wall. And the next thing we see, possibly because he's been brought back into the spotlight, is he's now one of the top three in, uh, in the Persian Empire. But he inhabits a world that's upside down. Uh, He lives in a fallen world, and he's in exile. Now, if he had been living in the time of Joshua, then, for example, or David, or Moses, then the covenant with the Israelites was pretty clear. If you're obedient, you're going to receive blessing. If you're disobedient, you're going to receive curse in this life. Uh, You can read about that uh, pretty specifically in Deuteronomy 28 and following. And there were sort of these rules. But Israel was faithless and worshipped idols. And God brought them into exile. And God is clear that he's the one doing it. That he's empowering the Babylonians and the Persians. That he is using this as a scalpel to cut out idolatry from Israel. And to purify them. But the world itself. Is different. Than it was for Joshua. Joshua is empowered. To go. Purify the land. Which include killing the enemies of Israel. Uh, And. As long as they were faithful. God would bless them. As the children. So clearly saw. Daniel was not thrown into the lion's den because he was wicked. He was not thrown into the lion's den even because he lacked faith or had to be taught a lesson or God was angry with him. Uh, Quite the opposite. Daniel is thrown into the lion's den because of his integrity. Uh, And nothing really changes in Daniel from the beginning to the end. Uh, he's faithful. Uh, he's called blameless by, by Daniel and, and, uh, and in the text itself, uh, apart from his own words. And so, yes, he's, he's in need of a Savior. Yes, he is uh, sinful. But in terms of this story, in terms of oh, did his sin drive him into the lion's den? No, absolutely not. Uh, We see the same thing in the book of Job. Job uh, is a righteous man. God calls him righteous. And Job suffers for the glory of God uh, because Satan hates him. Uh, And yes, at the end, he sees the glory of God in a bigger way, but Job doesn't suffer because... uh, there was anything wrong in him. And Daniel doesn't suffer because there's anything wrong in him. He's lived a life of integrity. He's doing his job so well that the king is ready to put him over everyone. And it's his very integrity that leads to this plot against him. We find in Daniel 6 2, I think, the reason why. Daniel is under assault. I mean, I I didn't come to this myself. I got it from someone else. But here's Daniel. What's he doing? He's over the 120 satraps. Well, what are they doing? One of the things they do is collect taxes. Well, if you know anything about tax collectors in the ancient world, uh, they were rich. Why were they rich? Because they would say things like, well, it says here you owe 20, but you're going to give me 40. And if you don't, this guy with the sharp stick is going to take it from you. Uh, It's just how the world worked. And uh, we see that in the Roman Empire. We see it in the New Testament. Uh, And we see that in 6 verse 2 that Daniel is making sure that the king might not suffer loss. Why did the king like Daniel? I think it was because he, he brought in more tax money than everyone else. Why did the other guys not like it? Because he didn't let them keep as much. So Darius is about to put him in charge of everything. Nobody's going to be making any money except the king. And they don't like this. They want him out of the way so that they can profit by dishonest gain. Now, I could be wrong on that reading. It could be something else. I don't want you to think that that's absolute, but I think it fits. And certainly the text tells us that they didn't want Daniel over over them. Uh, They found him to be faithful in every matter. And so they were at a loss of what to do until they came up with the idea, well, we can use his religion against him. And so the satraps and the others conspire and come up with this idea and they use his integrity against him. And so we see that Daniel is an innocent, uh, an innocent man. And uh, likewise, we see Jesus going before Pilate. And Pilate, Pontius Pilate, who is one of the most ruthless people uh, of the Romans, and the Romans were pretty ruthless. So Pontius Pilate, he had no problem killing people. Uh, He did it all the time. And in Luke 23, verse 4, he says about Jesus, I find no basis for a charge against this man. And he actually wanted Jesus to go free. Uh, Not enough, but uh, he thought it was utterly bizarre because here you have this righteous man and they wanted to kill him. Well, coming back to Daniel, their plot works, and uh, Daniel continues doing what he's doing. Uh, It's worth saying that Daniel doesn't pick up a new habit. Um, It's not that there's this command that everybody's going to worship Darius, and suddenly Daniel says, Not me, I'm going to start praying in my window. He's been doing that all along. Praying toward Jerusalem, out of hope, probably. Probably praying the kind of thing we see in Daniel chapter 9, where he's confessing the sin of the people. And Daniel has lived through the exile. And he knows that, God, you promised in 70 years we'd go home. We're almost up. When are we going home? Uh, probably praying something like that, and I commend you to read. Um, commend to you to read Daniel chapter nine a bit later, and one day we'll hopefully get to it. But uh, it's a fabulous prayer, and Daniel is continuing to be faithful in something he's already done before. So I think if you were to go to Daniel and say, "Wow." what an amazing testimony you have, he would have said something like, well, thank you, but that's just what I do every day. Um, And again, it's the the power of God that really makes this so remarkable. It's also worth saying that Daniel is working for the Persians. Uh, He's not working for an Israelite organization or a Jewish organization. He's actually working for his oppressors, and he does his job so well that Darius wants to put him over everything. This would have been his perfect chance uh, to say, I'm going to be put in the number two position. I am going to bring this place down. I'm going to stick it to the man, and these Persians are going to regret oppressing the people of God. It's not what Daniel's called to do. It's not what we're called to do. Uh, and Daniel works for the glory of God by doing his job well. John 15, 18 through 21 says this. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, this, of course, is written after Daniel, but it applies so well. Daniel is working in a world that is against him, a world where uh, Satan is at work, a world where evil men are are doing their things, thinking that they're getting away with it. Uh, And these men had every reason to think, that they were going to succeed. Darius loves the idea, uh, and so he goes along with it. And it looks like Daniel is going to meet his end. Now, one other text I want to read to you before we, we move on. Luke 9, Jesus says to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. And take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels." And that's a powerful text, and it's something that I think we in the American church have difficulty connecting with at a real deep level. Uh, for many of us we tend to have this subtle thing in the back of our minds, if not oh if not in the front, not purposefully, but Christianity is about me being comfortable. And yes, God does bring comfort. But, Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. This would have been ever ever more strange to the disciples because Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. So it would have sounded like something like this. If you want to be my disciple, I want you to get your electric chair, strap it on, and follow me. And they would have looked at him like, what are you talking about? Which is what the disciples did most of the time. Uh, And then they understood later. Uh, Daniel does this. Uh, He gives up everything. And we're told we need to do the same thing. And may it be that we never have to uh, have this kind of persecution, this kind of, of, of struggle. But we are promised that persecution will come. We are promised that the world is going to do its thing for, for years. And Christianity is about giving up the things of the world, about following Christ. Again, back to the story of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, we have a very interesting thing where we have these kings. And these kings are kings of massive empires with incredible amounts of power, incredible amounts of wealth. Nebuchadnezzar was the first one. He had a dream from God that told him he was the head of gold. He had a second dream that said he was basically a tree of life to the world. Uh, Well, then he builds an idol of himself and goes mad for a while and uh, ends up praising God. Belshazzar uses the gold from the temple for a drinking party for his buddies. We have this massive ego. They have this massive power. And God showed Nebuchadnezzar and God showed Belshazzar you're, you're not in control. And Darius, in celebrating his godlike power, perhaps hoping to unite his his newly conquered nation under one religion, uh, goes along with this and says, yeah, your suggestion uh, in verse 7, that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction, that whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Darius hears this, and either for political or religious reasons says, this is a great idea. And he signs it into law. And according to the laws of the Medes and Persians. Once he does that, ironically, he's powerless to stop it. Some have said, "Eh, he could have. But it would have meant in his first year, probably very soon in his first year, he would have discredited himself in front of his entire empire, which probably would have encouraged somebody to assassinate him. So, Humanly speaking, he's powerless. And he spends a night without sleep. Also ironic, Daniel had a great night. Uh, and Daniel, of course, is sent in, and he goes into the lion's den. This lion's den, I'm convinced, is not small. Uh, after all, we get to verse Uh, 24 toward the end and it's sufficient enough that he's throwing the people who accuse Daniel in. Uh, We don't know if it's just their spokesman or all of them, but their families go with them and the lions have no trouble with them. This is a frightening place. Uh, And Daniel goes in. And it seems like evil has triumphed. And it seems like Daniel is going to meet his end. And that'll be it. And of course, Daniel was willing and he... We don't know if he expected deliverance or if he thought, well, I'll be in glory tomorrow. Um, We don't know. But again, we know he's righteous. We know that he's not there because... He's done something wrong or or he needs to be taught some lesson. At least that's not the primary one. And in exile, in a world upside down, his obedience and faithfulness have landed him in a pit of certain death. And in the world we live in, we can expect the same kind of thing. That hard and evil things happen to people who love God and who are loved by God. Today in the BBC, or yesterday, in BBC News, um, I was reading and uh, one scholar said Christianity is the number one persecuted religion in the world. Uh, he, believe, he believes that because of political uh, reasons, because of political correctness, that that's been downplayed. But he makes a case that Christianity is the number one persecuted religion in the world. And certainly in our culture, we see an increasing uh, animosity to the message of Christianity, to people who are Christian. And admittedly, sometimes people in the name of Jesus say really bad things. And throughout history, Christians have done terrible things, supposedly in the name of Jesus. But there are many who are faithful. And we suffer anyway. And that's part of life in exile. And Peter, in First Peter 1, calls us basically God's elect exiles in the world. And in Daniel, he goes into the depth. And the greatest powers in the world are against him. We read that in verse 17, a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with with his own signet ring and the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. So if the lions themselves were not enough, the seals represented all the power and authority of the Persian Empire. And like with the Roman seals on the tomb of Jesus, the message was that if you mess with this, you're messing with the Persian Empire, and you're going to end up in there. You try to save Daniel, you're getting thrown in. And yet, Daniel is safe. King Darius says how oh, may the God you worship rescue you from the mouth of the lion. And Daniel tells us what happens in verse twenty one. The king runs to him, wondering if his friend, his most valuable advisor, is still alive. And Daniel says, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no wrong. I have done no harm. Daniel understood. And we don't know. know, did, Did Daniel spend the night having a great conversation with one of the angels. Uh, he had seen angels before in visions, uh, so that's possible. Or he may have curled up against a nice uh, shaggy lion and and drifted off and slept peacefully. But in the morning, he's there, and that and God protected him. God promises. In Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and staff, they comfort me, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Psalm 139, starting at verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings in the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for the darkness is as light to you. And Daniel experiences these things, literally. God was with him in the place that should have been his tomb. God overcomes the most powerful force on earth. He makes some hungry lions sit still. And I mentioned that Daniel is a picture of Christ. Theologians call this a type uh, from the Greek word tupos. So it means a little different than just this is one type of thing, that's another type of thing. Uh, It's a prototype. And Daniel is seen to be blameless before God and God answers by bringing him out. On the same way, Jesus went into the tomb, and the seals of the Roman Empire said, no one is moving this stone. And God sent an angel, and the angel rolled away the stone, and the soldiers didn't do anything about it. And Jesus walked out. In Hebrews 5, 7 through 10, God heard Daniel. God rescued him. And God heard Jesus. And because Jesus was blameless, he walked out of the tomb or passed through. uh, And the tomb was empty. Well, how do things end? Uh, Daniel prospers, the wicked are judged. This is a fantastic end. Daniel experiences resurrection power. But there's a little bit of a bittersweetness at the end because Jerusalem is not one of the places we think Daniel might be buried. Daniel didn't get to go home. Uh, He spent the rest of his time uh, in verse 28. Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now there's one more thing I want to say about about that. Is that that there are some scholars who believe that Darius and Cyrus are the same. Uh, kings often had different names in different languages in the ancient world. We don't have any record of King Darius, uh, this Darius. We have Darius the Great, but he's, he's later. He fights against the Greeks and loses at Marathon. Uh, this is a different one. So what's going on? One possibility, it's another name for his general. One possibility is that this actually is Cyrus. Why do I think that's so interesting? Because the very next year, the Jews get to go home. What role did Daniel have in that? I have no idea. What role did God have in it? Absolutely everything. But it's certainly the case that the next year, the decree goes out from Cyrus that the Jews get to go home. And that the state is going to pay for their trip. And it takes a while till the temple's rebuilt. But the exile ends. And I think it's a real possibility that Daniel may have been part of that. Again, I don't know that for sure, but I do know God was at work. What does all this have to do with us? And I want to say just a few words and then we'll conclude. We need resurrection power. We just celebrated that Christ is risen. If we're honest, we don't always live that way. I certainly don't. There are days when we live and daily life has a way of clouding our proper perspective. Our proper perspective is Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Indeed. And Jesus is coming back. And my problems are a small thing. And it may look like the world is in control. It may look like Satan is having a great time. It may look like Christians are going to lose. But we have a heavenly father. and We have a Lord Jesus who has raised, been raised from the dead. And I mentioned that Daniel does not get to go home. But one day he will. And in Isaiah chapter 65, there's a powerful message for all of us. And our children said this so well. Jesus is coming back. See, I will, this is uh, Isaiah 65, verse 17 and following. See, I will create a new heavens and new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem, and I will take my delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Skipping ahead a little. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. What does that mean? Jesus is coming back. He's going to make everything perfect. And if you believe in him and have confessed your sins before him, then he will look on you with favor and he will bring you into the great wedding feast of the Lamb, into the new heavens and the new earth, the place where righteousness dwells, where we are with Jesus forever. And that should be our perspective. Remember that this week and be encouraged. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the God who stopped the mouth of the lions. You are the God who frustrated the plot to have Daniel executed. You are the one who set up Cyrus in the first place. And you are the one who brought your people into exile so that they could be purified. And you are at work today. And Jesus, you've said you are preparing a place for us. And in your Father's house, there are many rooms. I pray that all of us will know that, that we will believe that if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, reveal yourself to them. May they come to you in faith and find life. Thank you, Jesus, that you have not left us alone, that you have given your Holy Spirit. And thank you that you are coming back. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.